Uh, first of all, churches are often donated land uh, or they purchase property for future use. And if you don't use that land for religious purposes, it's going to create some difficulties such as rollback taxes in our first case or denied relief under the RULIPA. Those are examples of what can happen if you don't use that property for religious use. So be careful with that. Hello and welcome to another episode of Law and Church, a podcast for church leaders. My name is Brian Fitton. I'm here with Josh Bryant, managing attorney at Church General Counsel and an ordained pastor. Hey Josh, I'm really excited about this episode today because you've been reviewing a lot of cases of churches that have been in court. And so, um, what is what is a main theme that has really stuck out this month for you? Yeah, you know it's been it's been interesting just because the report I got this month had a lot more cases in it than than usual. It was probably 250 pages of, of case law uh, in which churches have been in court. And you know the thing that kept coming up as I reviewed these cases is that some of these churches just didn't get professionals involved soon enough. Uh, there were cases in which they needed to get uh, a real estate expert, not a an agent, but somebody who uh, you know had the ability to take a look at surveys and and you know what would happen with traffic flow if we built a church on this real estate. Uh, that they really needed to get that involved, uh, that professional involved earlier in the process, and sometimes they needed to get a human resources professional involved in the case earlier, or needed to get an attorney uh, involved or an accountant, and so. That's kind of the big deal, and and one of the ways that that churches can most easily avoid difficulties in court, not necessarily avoid going to court, but avoid difficulties in losing in court, is to get those professionals involved as early as they can, uh, so that the, pr- the proper evidentiary issues are preserved, so that the documentations are 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 properly preserved, and and maybe even so that we make decisions uh, that don't land us in a situation where we have to go to court. All right, well, let's jump in. We have a lot of churches, uh, unfortunately, that were in court uh, over the last month, and it took me a while to read through all these cases and prepare for this podcast. But uh, let me jump in and go ahead and and talk just briefly about some of the cases that we're going to hear. They tended to kind of fall into several different categories, and we're so we're going to do this by category. And and the first category we're going to talk through deal with contracts. All right. Uh, the first case is Title Resources Guarantee Company versus the Lighthouse Church and Ministries. And what happened in this case is the church bought some land with the intention of relocating their church to this land after they uh, obviously built a church. And so they got a property tax exemption under those those plans and, and that uh, premise. Uh, what happened, though, is that several years later, the church decided to sell that land, and they'd never built on uh, that church. Uh, and so a, a legal mechanism called rollback taxes went into effect, basically that says, uh, look, we granted you this property tax exemption under the... Uh, understanding that you were going to build a church out here and use it for religious purposes or charitable purposes. You didn't do that, so now we're going to make you pay all of the property taxes that were due on that land. Uh, And that amounted to over uh, $110,000 that the government uh, demanded from this church. Well, what happened is the church said, well, we don't owe it. The buyers uh, are, are responsible for it. And the buyers said, no, we're not responsible for it. The church is responsible for it. And so kind of had this little dispute. Well, the buyer decided, look, we're not going to mess with um, you know penalties and fees and interest continuing to accrue on this. So we're just going to go ahead and pay two years worth of these taxes uh, from the date of closing. Uh, and the church 
had kind of anticipated that there were going to be some uh, taxes, and so they had placed some funds in an escrow account to pay taxes that accrued from the beginning of the year through that closing date. Uh, and so they, their understanding was, well, we only have to pay the taxes from January one until closing on the year that we uh, on the date that we close, but the buyer is going to pay all of these other property taxes. The seller thought that the church should pay all of those taxes plus another $45,000 in attorney fees. So now we're uh, getting upwards of $150,000 that uh, is being sought from this church. So this is a contract action. Uh, This is not the government suing the church to get taxes, and it's not really a property case, but it's a contract between the buyer and the seller here. And there were two contracts, in fact. Uh, The church argued that a sales contract required the buyer to pay the rollback taxes. The buyer argued that there was a separate contract and there was a separate document called an escrow withhold agreement. And the the buyer said, well, that requires the church to pay all these rollback taxes. And since there were two contracts here all regarding the same uh, transaction, the court said, look, under state law, we're going to interpret this as one uh, contract and two instruments. Okay, there's two different documents, but it's all one contract. So this arguably created an ambiguity. So the court had to apply rules of contract interpretation in order to determine what the parties intended to agree to. And so some of these um, contract interpretation rules are common sense, and we'll go over them. But ultimately here, had there been one contract instead of two, the church probably would have won on appeal. Uh, but the second contract could be read to require that church to pay those taxes, and so it created uh, an issue. Uh, the court mentioned two rules of interpretation that could have been applied here, uh, but they weren't raised. Uh, one rule of interpretation is that if there is a latter contract that cannot coexist with a prior contract, uh, then the latter contract is presumed to supersede that prior one. And here, the escrow withholding agreement is a subsequent contract. It was entered into after the real estate purchase agreement. So if that had been applied, which the court could not apply it because it wasn't raised by the parties, uh, then in that particular situation, the church could have lost that case just on that one rule of interpretation. There's another rule of interpretation that says in harmonizing contract provisions, terms stated earlier in an agreement must be favored over subsequent terms. Uh, And so if that rule were applied, the the church would have won on that one and the buyer would have had to pay all those taxes. So you've got two rules that compete with one another uh, that basically say the opposite things. Uh, It's just which one are we going to apply, which one is appropriate under these circumstances, and it gets really detailed and really complicated in making that type of determination on which one of these rules applies. But the parties did raise several other rules of contract interpretation that we'll go through. Number one, more specific terms are given preference over broad terms. Okay, And what the court found here was that both uh, contracts and both sets of terms were equally specific. So that rule of contract interpretation didn't apply. Another rule that they looked at was, well, changes in a printed form must be given special weight in determining the meaning of the parties and what their intent was. But this is not a form contract, and this really just applies to form contracts, and there were not really any changes per se. There weren't strikethroughs or uh, add this to, to the sales contract. It was two separate documents, and so that didn't really work either. Um, another argument was, look, you've got to look to the conduct of the parties and what their intent is in determining um, what the meaning of the contract is. And here it could be several things. Number one, there was enough money in the escrow account to pay those taxes from January 1st through the closing date. So that could be uh, interpreted to say, look, our conduct was to pay the taxes from the beginning of the year to the closing date. So yeah, look at that. 
Um, at the same time, what the buyer wanted the court to say is, well, you knew you were going to have to pay this and you put money in that escrow account. So that was indicative of your intent to pay those taxes. Uh, so what can we learn from this? First of all, you need to make sure you've got an attorney that, are, that is working these transactions. Uh, this church stood to make some money on the resale of this property even after those rollback taxes. Uh, and it really could have been a good thing for the congregation and for ministry purposes. Uh, they could have developed this property and made even more money that they could funnel into missions or other ministry projects. But now they're going to be lucky to break even because no attorney saw that these two contracts really contradicted each other and didn't clearly outline who was responsible for these rollback taxes. Second thing is, it's really wise to know some of these provisions of contract interpretation. Uh, the ones that we covered are really somewhat common sense, and, and some of them that the court raised may be a little bit more difficult, but ultimately knowing these provisions can help you see problems before they occur uh, and before you get an attorney involved. But don't let your knowledge of these principles of contract interpretation deter you from getting an attorney involved in this. Uh, it's really wise to do that. All right. Uh, let's move on to uh, the uh, to, to another contracts case. This is Sweet versus the Corporation of the Presiding Bishop of the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter Day Saints. And really, what this um, involves is the church was furnishing um, some of the churches that are in uh, the Latter Day Saints um, uh, faith and faith tradition. Um, and what they wanted to do was basically try to cut out a middleman, uh, a retailer or a wholesaler, and then go straight to uh, doing significant business with a manufacturer that was providing furnishings for uh, these different churches. Uh, the plaintiff here was that retailer or wholesaler, and he sued the church for tortious interference. And we'll talk about what that is here in a minute. Uh, and uh, the guy asked for $3.4 million. So this is not a, a, a small case. Uh, now, this particular case is really not um, doesn't really inform churches too much because the plaintiff made a fatal pretrial error that resulted in victory for the Latter-day Saints. Uh, but we can still learn from the case. So what can we learn? First of all, we want to be good stewards. Churches need to be good stewards. But we can't fall into the trap of saying that the ends of being good stewards justify the means of us becoming good stewards. And so if you intentionally interfere with a vendor's contract with a supplier in order to get a lower cost and that vendor can show damages and lost revenue and so forth, then you can be found liable for tortious interference with a contract. But this doesn't just apply to contracts either. If a salesperson is trying to sell you Acme paper towels for your bathrooms and you go straight to Acme to get a better price, you could be found liable for what's called tortious interference with a business expectancy, meaning this person was expecting uh, uh, some sort of economic benefit expended time and resources in order to get to that economic benefit uh, and your church interfered with that by doing an end run around the salesperson. Uh, so these are really kind of crude hypotheticals and in cases like this, it's, they're going to be very, very tied to specific facts. They're very fact-sensitive cases. So each case is going to be different. Uh, but needless to say, uh, you've got to be careful when going around or undercutting somebody in order to get a better deal uh, from a party that's already in contract or is already expecting some sort of economic benefit uh, in that particular transaction. All right. 
We have several cases here dealing with church property, and so we want to jump into church property issues. This is Spirit of Aloha Temple versus County of Maui, and this is another case, and we've talked about this on previous podcasts, uh, under the Religious Use of Land and Institutionalized Persons Act. And this is really just a standard case. They wanted to use land that they'd purchased uh, for a church, and it was zoned for agricultural use. They went to the county and asked for a special use permit, but due to a narrow road leading uh, past church property in a a hilly area there in Hawaii, uh, the county said that, listen, it's going to be too dangerous if you put a whole bunch of church traffic on that road, and they denied the special use permit. The church appealed that to the state court, which heard elements of the RULIPA, Religious Use of Land and Institutionalized Persons Act case. And they ruled against the church, the state court did. So what the state, what the church did, did is sued the county and federal court. Uh, and the county objected on a theory called res judicata, which is Latin for a thing decided. And it's what we, uh, is similar to stare decisis. Listen, we're, we, we've already decided this. We're not going to go back and do it again. Now, the court rightly said, listen, this is not a res judicata issue. It's not the proper objection. But it is a what we call a collateral estoppel defense. And what collateral estoppel is, is look, once an issue has been decided in one court, you can't go back and collaterally attack that in a different court. We're not going to relitigate that issue again. So what happened, the church initially filed their case in federal court, but the judge would not exercise what's called supplemental jurisdiction, which means, listen, as a federal court, I only have jurisdiction over this type of case. But because I have that jurisdiction, I can also bring in these state law claims if I want to. And the judge said, this is not a case in which it's it's good for me to do that. And so I'm not going to exercise that supplemental uh, jurisdiction over what is completely a state legal issue. Uh, so the court dismissed the state law count and then stopped litigation uh, uh, for, under the federal case so that the state court could rule on that one particular count. And although the church attempted to specifically reserve its federal claims, the federal court found that the church didn't do so well. Uh, The church argued that the denial of this special use permit placed a substantial burden on the church's religious exercise and that a denial of that special use permit was not the least restrictive method of meeting the government's interest in making sure uh, that uh, the roads are safe. The Planning Commission acted on that issue and found against the church, and the church did not appeal that specific issue to the state court. Uh, But the deal is the administrative hearing there is still an issue determination because the the Planning Commission there acted in a judicial capacity, and so it decided that issue, uh, and it resolved the issues of facts, and it gave both sides the ability to litigate their case. And so the only way that it could be litigated again in federal court is is for it to go through the state court appellate process, and they didn't raise that issue on the state court appeal. Uh, The Planning Commission did not rule on an equal protection claim under the uh, RULIPA. Basically that, listen, there were non-religious landowners in the area that got special use permits. You can't treat the church differently. Uh, So that one actually got to proceed, and we'll see how that turns out. The church had also sued under what's called a Section 1983 claim, which is basically uh, you've done something wrong as a government official acting in that government capacity. 
the court dismissed that um, after applying proper scrutiny to it. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with that equal protection claim uh, under 1983 because there was an equal protection claim under 1983 just like there was under RULIPA. Why the court allowed RULIPA to go forward and not the 1983 claim, I'm not exactly sure. So uh, the court dismissed another equal protection count for failure to show a discriminatory intent. And we're really getting into some of the nuances of the law. Um, but the, the court uh, then refused to hear again the state constitutional claims. So very procedurally complicated and difficult case, but what can we learn from the case? All right. First of all, we've got to be very, very careful when we're purchasing land. And you really probably need to have an attorney with you when you're purchasing that land. We need to take a look at that land and say, listen, it's zoned this way. What are the chances we're going to be able to use that property contrary to its current zoning? Let's take a look at what we've got. Let's take a look at the roadways. Let's take a look at water flow issues and, and you know, is putting uh, a building here going to, to uh, you know, and building a parking lot, is that going to create flood issues? And, you know, what other issues? Is it, is it going to uh, make a residential street too busy? There's all sorts of reasons uh, why uh, it may not be good to put a church there. But we need to try and make sure on the front end that we've got a shot at getting a special use permit before we buy land that's not zoned for church purposes. Second thing, and I see this all the time, do not go to the planning commission without a lawyer. Uh, there is nothing uh, that suggests this church did that, but it could have been in a whole lot more trouble had it made procedural mistakes when it was in front of the planning commission because the the appellate process after you go before an administrative commission or committee like that uh, can limit your ability to introduce additional evidence if you don't put that evidence in front of the planning commission. Uh, the third thing we can can take away from this case is not every ruling against a church is unreasonable when we're talking about land use issues. Uh, the safety issue in this case appears to have been legitimate. If you've got a windy road in a mountainous area. Uh, and you put a whole bunch of traffic on there, you're increasing uh, the, the risk of traffic accidents and people going off the mountain, unfortunately. Uh, and so that's not necessarily an unreasonable uh, thing to for, for the government to say, listen, we just can't put a, a commercial property there, uh, which is what a church would be zoned as, as commercial property. We can't put a, a commercial property there. Agricultural, no big deal. We don't have a whole bunch of people coming to an agricultural site, uh, but we do for a church or an office building. And, and so it's not, not everything is unreasonable uh, under those circumstances. So let's move on to the next case dealing with land and local government. This is Garfield Baptist Church's, uh, Church versus City of Pewaukee. And uh, this is, a, again, another case dealing with land and local government involved the assessment of, of a stormwater utility fee. And what happened was the city charged this church over $13,000 starting in 2010. Now, the church objected to this $13,000 for using this stormwater uh, uh, utility system and, and getting stormwater away from buildings and out of the city and, and so forth. Uh, so the church objected to that. The fee was eventually lowered by 40%, but the church was still not satisfied, and so they sued the city. Uh, in that lawsuit, they claimed that they didn't use the stormwater management system. Uh, they also claimed that, listen, we're a church, we're a nonprofit entity, uh, and as such, this really constitutes nothing but a tax uh, that we are exempt from. The church lost this fight. Uh, so here's what we can learn from this. As in the previous case, you've got to make sure you've got an attorney when making these types of objections to a public utility. Uh, and one of the issues here is the church didn't go to the right 
place for a redress of their grievances. Um, because utility companies are granted a quasi-monopoly by the government, they act as quasi-governmental entities. And utility disputes have to almost universally begin with a public service commission. Uh, and that includes electricity electricity issues, plumbing issues, uh, stormwater maintenance issues, gas line, um, telephone, so forth and so on. These often, very often, have to go before a public service commission. Now, the church filed this directly with a trial court, and that trial court didn't have jurisdiction to hear the dispute because it didn't go before the public service commission. So if you don't get the ruling you want in a public service commission, then you can still go get judicial review, but as with appeals from municipal or county commissions like a planning commission, you can be limited in the evidence that uh, you can present if things are not done properly in that ad initial administrative review. So you've got to get an attorney involved early if you're making these types of objections. Another case dealing with land and uh, government uh, is Rector Church Wardens and Vestri Vestrymen of Trinity Church versus City of Fis uh, Philadelphia Historical Commission. Uh, and this case involved the City of Philadelphia Historical Commission designating a parish house as a historical site. On appeal, the church challenged the court's deference to commission regulations and the failure to analyze that situation under the RULIPA. Interestingly, uh, interestingly here, the courts referred to the church as owners because there were no religious activities taking place on this property. Uh, the the defendants here, the plaintiffs here actually, uh, they were using that property. They leased it to the, the police academy uh, and the police athletic association and there were other people leasing parts of this building but there weren't religious services going on on the property from what I uh, could read from the case. And so the court found for the city. All right, So what can we learn from this? Uh, first of all, churches are often donated land uh, or they purchase property for future use. And if you don't use that land for religious purposes, it's going to create some difficulties such as rollback taxes in our first case or denied relief under the RULIPA. Those are examples of what can happen if you don't use that property for religious use. So be careful with that. Second thing we need to see, churches can often be designated as a historic place because of how old many church buildings are. And if you have an older church building that could have some sort of historical significance and you're making plans to dispose of that property, which is often the case, you need to document those plans and your actions very, very carefully. This is a case in which the church probably should have made an allegation that this designation of the building as a as a historical site was a governmental taking, uh, you know, because they intended to tear down this property actually and um, and build a, a, a gas station there. Uh, and I, I think when word got out that that was the plan is when everybody wanted this church designated as a historical site. Uh, and so with those plans and the ability to make money on this, um, and they were again were owners, not a church. Um, for that money to be taken or that land to be taken away or that purpose to be taken away by the designation of this site as a historical place uh, could be a governmental taking of property subject to uh, the Fifth Amendment's taking calls. That's what we all, uh, often call uh, eminent domain. So, all right, let's move into uh, some uh, personal injury cases. And we've got several of these today as well. First is Cruz versus Trustees of Calvary Baptist Church. Uh, and this involves charitable immunity, which is interesting. It doesn't come up all that often. But in this particular case, a plaintiff, plaintiff was coming to a, a funeral hosted at the church and tripped backwards over a retaining wall. He fell several feet over uh, that retaining wall and he fractured um, vertebrae in his back. And it took 15 minutes before somebody found him uh, laying on his back uh, in excruciating pain. 
And an expert witness for the plaintiff inspected the church and, and found that, oh, well, you had not met several code and industry standards. And then an expert witness for the church disagreed and said, listen, uh, these buildings, you don't, they have to be constructed to the code as it was adopted at the time of construction, and then everything else is grandfathered in. And the state law in this case provided for charitable immunity, and not every uh, state has this, but uh, you've got this charitable immunity in this state unless the church acted willfully or wantonly or were grossly negligent. And the the court found that the church was not willful. They didn't intentionally push somebody over uh, a retaining wall. They weren't wanton or or reckless or grossly negligent in in that they had had previous problems and and never fixed it. Uh, And so under these circumstances, the court found, yes, you do have charitable immunity. So what can we learn from this one? First of all, every state's charitable immunity statutes follow a different system if they have charitable immunity at all. Uh, And charitable immunity is going away uh, slowly in in many states. Many states have, have repealed it, and really it's, it's disfavored in a lot of jurisdictions that do have it anyway. So we've got to be careful relying on uh, charitable immunity. Uh, we cannot rely on it to determine our course of action. You really only need to use this issue of charitable immunity as a defense uh, in a crunch if your state even allows it. Another thing that we can learn from this case is that if there are problems, this, this case could have gone an entirely different way had other people fell on, uh, fallen off of that retaining wall and hurt themselves. Uh, and so if you have an issue, you need to fix that issue. Uh, if you don't, then you could be found grossly negligent, and that would undo any charitable immunity claim. So we've got another personal injury case, and again, the plaintiff's last name is Cruz, uh, but a different Cruz, different state. This is Cruz versus Roman Catholic Church of St. Gerard Magella. Uh, This is another personal injury case involving uh, a construction safety law in New York that requires property owners and contractors to provide safe scaffolding for employees, Uh, and that includes ladders and so forth. So the scaffolding in this case fell uh, with a worker on top of it, and the worker was injured uh, falling from that collapsed scaffolding. So the court in this case found that the church was liable. All right, so what can we learn here? We've got to learn some things from this. First of all, the decision hinged on whether the church, relying on an affidavit that was signed two and a half years after the incident occurred that stated that the worker was not using proper safety equipment, was sufficient. Uh, And the court found it was not. You can't have an affidavit signed two and a half years after the incident um, saying that the safety equipment was there and say everything's good. Specifically, uh, and what made this even worse is that no one mentioned at the time of the incident in these these different incident reports or witness statements that the safety equipment was not there. And so two and a half years go by and all of a sudden the safety equipment shows up and this is a new allegation. That's that's a problem. So if there is a personal injury on your church's property, you need to find any and all witnesses to that injury. You need to get contemporaneous incident reports. Have everybody who saw what happened write a statement figure out what happened. You need to collect photographs. You need to collect video. People will whip out their cell phone and record anything. See if you can collect that stuff. If you've got security cameras, save your security camera footage. You have got to preserve evidence. That's an absolute must. If you don't do that and then there's an allegation made later that certain evidence was there that's not, that's a problem. And if you don't preserve that evidence, you actually run into an issue in trial court called spoliation of evidence in some cases which said because you didn't retain that evidence or because you destroyed that evidence, um, the jury or the judge is going to have the ability to infer that that evidence would have worked against your case. So you've got to preserve evidence. 
Today's featured resource for church leaders is Go Rogue X. If you are looking to reach your congregation outside of Sunday mornings, Go Rogue X will help you get there with live service broadcasting and content creation. They will consult with your team on equipment and training to make sure you have the best quality broadcast. They also handle repurposing of your weekly Sunday sermons into a blog, podcast, YouTube video, as well as bite-sized content for Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Visit GoRogueX.com for more information. Um, let's do another personal injury case. This is Lozada versus St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Church. Exact same statute uh, this, that this case deals with. Uh, but in this case, a worker was installing wiring for a security system in the church when his ladder shifted, uh, and again, the worker was injured. The case here hinged on the plaintiff testifying that no one was holding the ladder while um, he was doing this work, but his coworker testified that this coworker was holding the ladder. So as you can see, this would be a great time to have a contemporaneous incident report. Let me get a statement from that worker so that says, I was holding the ladder. Uh, and then you can clearly show that somebody else was holding the ladder when it goes to trial. And that's what happened in this particular case, uh, is that you had competing information and it was going to have to go to trial and, and that coworker would have to testify that he was holding the ladder. The statute in play here really uh, just says that if the worker is solely responsible for his injuries, then the church is not liable, or, or the the property owner is not liable. But if the property owner, or if the if the person is not the sole um, responsible party for his own injury, then the property owner is going to be liable for that. And in in one case, the the church tried to say, well, he wasn't using his safety equipment. Uh, and as such, he's solely responsible. He'd have been using that safety equipment. He wouldn't have fallen. Um, the, the court said, yeah, sorry, you should have raised that two and a half years ago. Um, we're, we're not going to consider that evidence. Uh, in this case, the, the church said, hey, there was somebody holding the ladder, so any slips that he had, anything that went wrong, that was his own fault, and he's liable. And the court said, that is at least something that's going to get you to trial. All right? So let's move on now to another personal injury case. This is Hartung versus Diocese of Rockville Center. Uh, here the plaintiff sued the church after she slipped on a, an icy patch after receiving ashes for Ash Wednesday. And the trial court and appellate court found for the church here on really narrow grounds. Uh, the church did not create the hazard and they did not have actual or constructive knowledge of that hazard. And so the church was not found liable. Uh, that is not frequently the case. So what can we learn from this? Obviously, if the church creates a hazard, it has a duty to remedy that hazard. All right. And so if you're doing work and there's exposed wiring or tools that somebody could trip over, you've created that hazard. You've got to remediate that hazard. And if somebody gets hurt, you're going to be liable for it. Um, second thing we can learn is if somebody tells the church about the hazard, the church has a duty to remediate it. That's actual knowledge of this hazard. And if somebody gets hurt, you're going to be liable for that injury. And then finally, this is not a situation in which you can stick your fingers in your ear and, and, and close your eyes and hope that you don't hear anything. All right. If you should know about a hazard because somebody tried to tell you, or if you should know about it because you walked right past it uh, as a pastor and you uh, lead the church, um, then you have constructive notice of that hazard. And if somebody gets hurt, you can be liable for the injury. Uh, let's go uh, to some property dispute issues. This is Newton Covenant Church versus Great American Insurance Company. It's a sad case involving a spl church split uh, over some doctrinal and ethical issues. And um, the dispute was whether... Uh, the insurance company had to defend the majority of the prior church in this property dispute. And so it's, it's a 
property dispute, but ultimately this is really kind of an insurance and an insurance contract case. And what happened is 80% of the congregation decided to disassociate with a national convention of churches and affiliate with a different national convention. Well, the other 20% sued because they wanted to continue to own the property. Uh, after the case settled, the 80% majority wanted the insurance to pay the cost of that defense uh, from uh, the lawsuit from the, the other 20%. Uh, and the insurance company reviewed and said, listen, we're, we're not going to pay uh, that claim. And the court found that the insurance company was not required to defend uh, the majority of the church. And they found so on several grounds. First of all, that the new church was a completely and distinct uh, entity from the old church that had an insurance contract with the insurance company. So it was a different entity. And that hinged somehow, in some fashion, on the church's failure to follow its own bylaws and how this went down. So we'll have to talk about that. The second thing here is that the initial complaint didn't properly allege that the plaintiff church trustees had been sued in their official capacity, and in fact the court found uh, that they were sued in their individual capacities as trespassers. Uh, and so the, the policy here didn't cover them individually, it only covered them in their official capacities. And then finally, the policy specifically excluded one insured party suing another insured party, or, or one person in the church suing another person in the church uh, as coverage. And it's basically, listen, we're writing this insurance contract for you, and you're basically suing yourself in this particular case. So what can we learn? Churches absolutely must follow their bylaws. Somehow this church did not follow their bylaws. That was a different case uh, that was just vaguely mentioned in this particular opinion. Uh, but there would have been much less of a chance of litigation had the process been done. So when you're making a major shift like this, we're disassociating from a, a denomination or we're joining another denomination or anything like that, selling property, whatever, get an attorney to help you walk through that process and ensure that proper parliamentary procedure is followed according to your bylaws at the meeting in which this is voted on. Uh, and ultimately, this would not have been uh, as, as much of an issue had Robert's Rules of Order or whatever been followed and, and had we followed the proper process. Uh, and so let's move on to another similar case. This is Eddington, uh, Eddingville, Elling, <laughs> Eltingville. Let's move on to another case. This is Eltingville Lutheran Church versus Rimbo, and it's a very similar case. Uh, and in this case, a regional uh, adjudicatory authority uh, in, in a more Presbyterian-style church took over that church's property because the church was slipping into some financial ruin. And the church sued that higher authority, saying you can't do this. And the difference here is that this is a church suing their higher authority. They're not suing an insurance company. So now we've got a whole separate issue. And the primary issue is... Is this a property dispute in which a court can get involved, or is this a religious dispute uh, in which the can't court get, uh, court cannot get involved? And the court here found that this was strictly a religious dispute. So what can we learn? Once again, you've got to follow your bylaws. Uh, in this case, the bylaws subjected that church to the higher authority. And as such, that higher authority's determination to take over the church was purely a religious determination. and The court was not going to get involved in, in the ecclesiology or the polity here to determine um, whether uh, the, the higher authority could take over that church or not. Uh, the court just didn't have jurisdiction to hear that dispute. Uh, let's move on to an employment case. This is Armas versus St. Augustine Old Roman Catholic Church, and this is a case where a church planter, and they, they were not officially tied to the Vatican, but they followed uh, Roman Catholic teachings and, and uh, um, 
practices and liturgy and so forth. Uh, but he had hired two volunteers and then stopped paying them. Uh, an interesting twist in the story is that this this church planner was also using church property to roll cigars in the church with tobacco that he had imported from the Dominican Republic. Uh, and sometimes these volunteers would do that. So this brought up the Fair Labor Standards Act. And for it to apply, an employer must be an enterprise under law or an employee must regularly be involved in interstate commerce. And the court here found that the employees were not regularly involved in interstate commerce. uh, And as such, they did not qualify for FLSA coverage under the individual rules. And even though uh, they had taken these tobacco products and transported them across state lines on a handful of occasions, the court found that was not a regular involvement in interstate commerce. But what the court did find is that a jury could find that the church was an enterprise because the church operated a school. We've got a lot of churches that operate schools or coffee shops or bookstores or other types of um, enterprises out of them, and so they could be found to be an enterprise. And since the FLSA could apply, the court found that when the plaintiff complained about not getting paid, the church planner's conduct after that could be found by a jury to be retaliatory. And you can't retaliate against complaints of FLSA noncompliance. So this case is now going to head on to trial. What can we learn from it? First of all, Fair Labor Standards Act issues in the church are extremely complicated, all right? The Department of Labor publications state that churches are frequently exempt, all right? But many churches regularly go on mission trips throughout the country. They regularly have more than a half-million-dollar budget. Uh, They regularly go on Amazon and purchase office supplies or regularly go online and and have office supplies or books or other things shipped to them in official business. Those things could make the church an enterprise engaged in interstate commerce. All right. More and more, churches are operating schools and bookstores and other businesses like we talked about. That is automatically going to make the church an enterprise. More and more churches are engaging in other business partnerships like renting out their facilities or developing uh, excess property and so forth. All of these things could make a church an enterprise under the FLSA, so we've got to be very, very careful. Classifying these job uh, positions if uh, an employee is subject to FLSA individually or if um, the church is considered an enterprise Classifying those positions is a difficult process, and it's riddled with an exception. So you need to get an attorney or a human resources expert to help you out with that. Well, this is a little bit longer podcast than we want to typically do. There were just a lot of churches uh, in court, and we needed to go through some of these cases. Uh, and, And so go back and listen to this again. Take some notes if you haven't done so. These are very good ways to learn about what other churches have done, um, mistakes that other churches have made, which they're going to make. Nobody's perfect. Uh, But learn about those mistakes uh, and and think about how you can keep your church from uh, those particular mistakes. Wow, Josh, so much information there and really some good examples of pitfalls that other churches have fallen into. Um, Tell us kind of what are your final thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, before we started the episode, I said that, you know, one thing that you can do in order to avoid difficulties in court is to get your professionals involved early. And there's one other kind of pattern that we saw here, and that's if you don't, uh, if if you do want to go to court, then just throw your bylaws away and don't follow them. Uh, but you've got to follow your bylaws. And there were several cases here where a church took an action that was not in line with their bylaws, and that created an issue which later created another issue that landed them in court. And so we've got to follow your bylaws. 
and, and certainly follow your processes. There were several um, instances here in which a church didn't follow a process of maybe preserving evidence, as was the case with uh, the guy who fell off the scaffolding and hurt himself uh, at that church in New York, or um, you know maybe not following a good process of examining real estate before you purchase it. If you'll have those processes in place, make the decisions before you have to make the decision so that you have a process when it is time to make that decision, um, and then follow your bylaws. Those are great ways to uh, also make sure that you keep yourself out of court and out of trouble if you end up having to go to court. Josh, tell us a little bit about what you've got going on over at Church Council. You know, we talk an awful lot about processes and how those processes can protect your church, but doing it well is really time-consuming. And so as a result, there are a lot of churches that are operating unprotected with few or no documented procedures and policies, not to mention the state of many churches' bylaws. Uh, And as the world becomes more litigious, church leaders are going to need a simple, affordable, expert way to protect their churches with good policies and procedures. And Church General Council offers that, a customized online policy and process manual that also serves as a cloud-based training platform for volunteers and staff. You'll have access to an attorney like myself that focuses on church law, and that is all included with this system. So go check that out at churchgeneralcouncil.com. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Law & Church. Make sure you check out lawandchurch.com for all the resources, show notes, links. Everything is available for you there. And if you'd like to connect with us, go over to facebook.com, search the Church Esquire Club. There's all sorts of opportunities for you there. And thanks so much for joining us. We will see you next week.